Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, everything you can possibly think of has a history, like baloney, schmaltz and chimpanzees. Oh, I'd love us to get our teeth sunk into schmaltz, Sam. I think that would be brilliant. Or, or we could think about doing hackers, whackers and slackers, trackers, packers and carjackers. With the last one, I'm, I'm channeling my historical fast and furious here. That's very good. Um, we should definitely put the history of slackers on the list. That's awesome. I like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them. As always, explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of breath is in fact not only all about halitosis, but it's also about freediving, humanity and the soul, Harry Houdini, advertising and consumerism in 1950s America. It's about mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and the Royal Humane Society and so much more. Or who knew that the history of applause is in fact all about popularity in ancient Rome, Stalinist Russia, babies, opera-going sophisticates, crowds and people being paid to clap or even boo, and Henry James's failure as a playwright. And of course, it's all about gratitude to the NHS and frontline medical staff across the globe during the COVID-19 crisis. Mm-hmm. I think there's a clap for Tom, isn't there? Captain Tom. Was that today there or is. yesterday? Have I very, sad to, very sad to hear that. Very, yeah, very yeah. sad. Yes. Um, he, he raised a fortune for the NHS. What a, what a, what a legend. Uh, today... Um, you're probably wondering who's talking to you. Uh, let me introduce ourselves. The, the man uh, not sitting opposite me because we're, we're in lockdown. Let's say he is the stepladder of historians. He's safe, portable, reliable. He's able to operate on his own, uh, produces excellent results. Uh, he never wobbles when his feet find the insecure ground of propaganda and lies in the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. But I do suffer from heights. So I'm rarely up ladders. Um, you however, from the, the fear of heights, si- James. <laughs> I suffer from I suffer from the fear of heights. I suffer from heights. I suffer from the fear of heights. Yes, I suffer from the fear of heights. I'm afraid. So I'm rarely found up a ladder. Uh, however, the man not sitting opposite me and who's burbling in your ear holes, uh, because we are social distancing in these grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were a famous ladder-related historian. He'd only be the historical equivalent of Fred Dibner. 
<laughs> Scaling the great heights of the past. It's the famous historical adventurer, your friend and mine, Dr. Sam Willis. Thank you, James. Uh, who was Fred Dibner? Remind me. He's a man who scaled up tall things. He had a sort of TV series a while ago. Oh, Steeplejack, that's right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then he went on to do all sorts of stuff about steam. It all comes back to me now. It comes back to me now. Um, ladies and gentlemen, today we are doing the history of ladders. I can't remember why we've decided to do this, but it's because been great. I, I can really remember why. why. What always happens is I put together my little sort of rhyming triplicates uh, and you pick one out and you go, oh, yes, that would be brilliant. And one of them was ladders. Oh, right. I so completely accidental. <laughs> it's totally accidental. Um, we could have done bladders well. instead, but we're we doing should. ladders. We'll do um, bladders next week. <laughs> uh, no, 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 we're not. And, bla- and ladders have a have a fantastically ancient history. Mm. Uh, they're extraordinary. So wait, how do you start thinking about the history of something that is literally, um, it's like literally Two sets of steps with a pole. <laughs> How well, do you start uh, thinking about that? Mm, yes. Uh, um, I well, see it, you're it, stumped. I, well, I was completely stumped. But then I realised, of course, that uh, there was something I could talk about, which is usually the case with histories of the unexpected. And it really brought to mind um, the bit we talk about, the history of the hand. There's a podcast we've done on the history of the hand. It was one of the earliest ones we did. It's something we talk about in our live show. And I discuss um, hand stencils on prehistoric walls of caves, um, about 40,000 years old. I won't go into them too much. I'd like you to go back and to, uh, to to listen to the episode on the history of hand. But they're found in France, Spain, Africa, Australia, Borneo. The, the oldest examples are in Borneo and Argentina. They're absolutely fascinating things. And sometimes there are an enormous number of them. Uh, and it, it demonstrates a certain degree of pre-planning and also of teamwork. And one of the most interesting things about these hand stencils is that... In some of the caves, they are in completely inaccessible parts of the cave. So they're not, as you might expect, at sort of five feet up at head height or chest height for, um, you know, a head height for a child, chest height for an adult, you know, at a completely reasonable height. No, no. Some of them are in kind of nooks and crannies, um, hugely high up in dark, remote parts of caves. And that means that they're actually... Are completely impossible to have been made without some form of teamwork and help to get to that location. Now, we don't know whether um, ladders were involved. Perhaps they were. Um, this is 40,000 years ago, remember, and actually the earliest evidence we have of an actual ladder is 10,000 years ago. Uh, but that's also from a cave painting. It's, um, it's a Mesolithic rock painting from the Spider Caves. I love the sound of that. The Spider Caves in Valencia in Spain. So what I'm talking about are hand stencils made 30,000 years before, but we know they couldn't have been made without some form of help. But it kind of made me think about what uh, what people did before ladders, James. Did they... I, I can't even imagine a time before a ladder. Did they Jumped just uh, very high? It's the same problem that Michael did they jump high? had. Yeah. He, he, oh, okay. He, 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 painting the Sistine Chapel, obviously the chap needed a long ladder or set of scaffolding. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, maybe they just yes. held each other up with very hugely powerful arms. Anyway, the point is, is that you can. Um, let's start at the beginning. So one way of thinking about ladders is what's the earliest evidence for an actual ladder, and then. 
what would the earliest evidence be for us to be able to infer that there might have been a ladder? And the answers to the two things are are very different indeed. But of course, you can think about um, uh, what you know. Essentially, what uh, the design of ladders, um, uh, what people used ladders for. There are all sorts of fascinating laddery histories, which I'm sure we are going to explore. There certainly are. And we can also think about the cultural meaning of ladders and ladders and superstition. Though not wanting to walk under ladders because it was bad luck. And this is a superstition that is thought to date back almost 5,000 years to ancient Egypt. And this is another sort of laddery tomb cave thing. So ladders were left in the tombs of the deceased so that they could basically, when they sort of woke up or whatever they did, uh, they could climb up the ladder and ascend into heaven. And, and in Egyptian thought... They believed that the sort of the area between the ladder and the wall was a place where you would have good and evil spirits. And so this then sort of passes into sort of popular culture in a sort of in a very sort of roundabout way. And and people and it spreads this idea of people not wanting to walk under ladders. Do you know what you are supposed to do in order to um, in order to reverse this kind of bad luck? Do you know anything about that? Um, of course you don't. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> and don't Google it. Don't Google it now. You, no. you are. There are some examples. Um, I was googling this on a on a ladder company that had written a lovely little blog, um, and probably trying to make people want to buy their items. But why you would put a sort of historical uh, bit on on ladders? You're supposed to say the words bread and butter as you walk under the ladder to make a wish. While you're walking under it, they're walking backwards under a ladder. Um, so if you find yourself sort of under walking under a ladder, you reverse back out and take a different route round. Or you should cross your fingers and don't uncross them until you come across a dog, uh, which is extraordinary. <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same reason why um, when you see a magpie, if you say um, if you salute the magpie and say hello, Mister Magpie, won't you come to tea? Uh, that gets rid of the sort of bad luck associated with seeing a magpie. What if you Did see you know a magpie that? on a ladder? Uh, you're, you're done for. <laughs> you are done for, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. done for. <laughs> right, well, where are you going to take us? Are you going to take us into your caves? Uh, yes, let's do some proper history. Um, we are going to go to the Siege of Constantinople in 1204. Mm. Um, very, very interesting and uh, inevitably slightly linked with sea power, James, just because it's something that I'm quite interested mm. in. Um, it is a fascinating Excellent. siege, this, explaining what's happening. So it's it's deep in the history of the Crusades. And for those of you who think the Crusades is all just about armies going to the Holy Land, that's not the case. There's all sorts of fascinating um, maritime links to it as well. Um, and in fact, one of the most unmissable lessons of the first two crusades was how difficult it was to get from northern Europe to the Holy Land um, overland. Um, we've got people dying from exhaustion, starvation, exposure on the journey, and the Holy Land itself is controlled by the Byzantine Empire, and they're not necessarily going to be friendly. Um, in the third crusade, you've got Richard Lionheart. He attempts to bypass this. He sails uh, from Marseille to the port of Acre. Um, and it's very successful. Um, the, the Crusaders actually captured the entire Muslim fleet. But something slightly similar happened in 1198. So you've got another crusade. The Fourth Crusade is preached. And the Venetians right, uh, contracted to supply a fleet um, to take them to take the Crusaders to the Holy Land. But what happens is that 
the Crusaders turn up with a much smaller army without right without the right amount of money, and the Venetians hold this crusading army uh, to ransom, essentially, and they make them um, follow their own interests. And at the time, that involved the capture of Constantinople. Uh, it's fascinating the way they went about it. I don't know if any of you who've been to modern Istanbul now, it's got the most extraordinary uh, defensive walls, defensive system all around it, close to the sea. Very, very difficult indeed to get to. It doesn't mean it wasn't attacked and it wasn't besieged. It was a lots and lots of times. But this is one of the most striking uh, because of the efficacy of the attack. You've got an amphibious attack, uh, essentially. It's led by ships full of crossbowmen and archers. They clean the beachheads. And then you've got troops, uh, horse transports um, who, that come ashore and make their landing. There's uh, the great chain which stretches across the Golden Horn. That's broken. And then just beyond that is the, the entire Byzantine fleet. And that's what the Venetians are trying to get their hold of. But the key bit about it is the way that the Venetians attacked from the sea. They did so using something called flying bridges. So this all links to ladders, James, because of the problems of scaling ladders. How do you scale a wall in a siege? And this has its own history. Uh, it's got all sorts of fascinating um, siege machinery you can study and you can think about. So flying bridges, that used by the Venetians, is one way that they solve the problem of how you climb up a ladder onto the top of the walls of Constantinople. These were supposedly wide enough for three men. They were made from the ship's yard, so huge, long pieces of timber, essentially like a ladder, but the biggest ladder you've ever seen. They were then covered with leather and canvas to protect them from missiles uh, and Greek fire, so that's flammable material um, being hurled at you by the Byzantines. They were then suspended, we don't know how this happened, from the mast tops so that they could be swung onto the tops of the city walls. So in effect, we think that they might have been a sort of horizontal ladder linking the top of the masts with the top of the city walls. Um, and by doing it this way, uh, in a single assault, they managed to seize between 25 to 30 towers. That's about a quarter of the entire wall, and they do it all at once. It's a fascinating um, little aspect here of the, the history of the ladder as much as the history of siege warfare and the history of the Crusades. Um, I've just got a little account here. This is from Robert de Clary. He is a, a knight from Picardy um, who was there during the Fourth Crusade. And when they were come to the city, the men of Mark encamped there and pitched their tents in front of the palace of Blackernai, which was the emperor's. And this palace was at the very end of the city. Then did the Doge of Venice cause most marvellous engines to be made and right goodly ones. For he had them take the spars which support the sails of the ships, which were full thirty fathoms in length or more. And these he caused to be firmly bound and made fast to the masts with good cords and good bridges to be laid on these and good guards alongside them. Likewise, of cords. And the bridge was so wide that three armed knights could pass over it abreast. And the doge caused the bridge to be so well furnished and covered on the sides with sailcloth and other thick stuff. But those who should go up to the bridge to make an assault need have no care for crossbow bolts nor for arrows. And the bridge projected so far forward beyond the ship that the height of the bridge above the ground was full forty fathoms or more, and each one of the transport ships had a mangonel which continually hurled missiles against the walls and into the city. 
So very much described as a flying bridge there. He keeps on using this word, but we think it was actually constructed in much the same way as a ladder. And it was a a way of climbing up the walls of Constantinople in 1204. Um, The result, of course, they, they, they... capture it it's a major turning point in medieval history um so you've got these crusaders it's it's a i mean they they decide essentially to attack the world's largest christian city um it's unprecedented it's immediately controversial and afterwards the byzantine empire is left in a much poorer uh, state it's much smaller less able to defend itself uh, which is key because then it is captured later by the ottomans so a turning point in european history there james uh, with a fascinating history of ladders at its very heart one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh, it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Flying ladders. How, how, how our great minds think alike, because I too had been thinking about uses of ladders and military uses of ladders. And I'm, I'm very, I'm not normally somebody who's interested in sort of, you know, in military history and boys and their toys, but I, this was something that I got into over the recent lockdown because I've been rewatching uh, the, stunning Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, which is amazing. And one of the things that really struck me with this as I sat there late into the night, uh, beyond midnight with my 11-year-old, watching hordes of orcs scaling walls of castles and sort of getting into keeps and all sorts of things, was, yes, you've guessed it, ladders. And this got me thinking about the history of ladders and siege warfare, which is kind of what you've been talking about, but coming in from, from, um, coming in from the sea. And in a world of heavily fortified castles, which I know you know an awful lot about, siege warfare is predominant and ladders are a key part of how attackers get into 
and invade castles. And there are various ways in which you do it. You starve them out, you poison the um, poison the water supply, or fire in some diseased animals that will then fester and, and spread disease and contagion around the place. You mine underneath the walls, uh, and then sometimes put explosives in, and you use battering rams and artillery to sort of destroy the walls. But then... You know, you've actually got to be able to put people in there and you can either go through the front gate or you scale it with your ladders. So you run up and you put your, your ladders up there. And this actually has a name. Uh, it's called an escalade, uh, which is the act of scaling defensive walls or ramparts with the aid of ladders uh, and is a really common feature of siege warfare throughout the ancient and medieval world and it basically it's it's as it it's as it seems it's literally you know how you get up to the base of castle walls and you put your ladders up and there are various sort of ways in which they they did it uh, that I'll talk about in a little bit but also the people who are defending you know, are are aware of this, and and as people are trying to sort of in you know attack the castle and get in, they're dropping you know hot oil and all sorts of pitch and you know missiles down at them. They're firing through arrow slits. They've got moats around to prevent ladders being dragged near the near the castle so that they can scale up. They they've got little holes in the wall where they can you know as ladders come up, they can attack the soldiers that are. That are coming through. They've got there's a feature of the wall called a talus, uh, which you'll know all about, Sam, after your castles program. Um, but it's a sort of battle, battle, battered, battered sloping face of the wall of the castle that means it's actually really difficult to to climb up. So there are all sorts of tactics that the that the defenders with inside the castles would use. And then of course you've got to think about it from the perspective of the soldiers themselves who want to get in. And how do you climb up a ladder in the midst of a pitched battle with stuff being fired at you, with, you know, with arrows winging all over the place? I mean, the, the first thing is you, you, you climb as fast as you can, you know, and you've got... Um, You've got um, defensive sort of screens around you to sort of, you know, stop you, stop you getting um, getting killed. Um, the, this led to the development of the siege tower or the breaching tower. And this is probably very similar to some of the sort of contraptions that you were describing. And there's a whole history of this kind of military technology that is related to to sieging battering rams and sort of contraptions that'll you know hurl things over the uh, over the walls. Uh, but this idea of a breaching tower, it has the you, you'll either have the the ladders inside or defended at the back. So it's like a sort of series of ladders that you'd scale up at the back. It's made of wood. Um, it's got a hollow inside. It, you roll it along. Uh, drag it up to the walls, and then you drop a hatch, and which is which is a sort of ramp that um, that people having climbed up inside can then storm out, and it's usually full of sort of you know heavily armed people. So that's the sort of you know um, the sort of um, contraption that, um, that we see you know developing in in medieval warfare, and it's full of sort of swordsmen and archers and you know all sorts of all sorts of people, but the act of actually scaling up these ladders it's a bit like sort of going over the top in in world war 1 a bit of a sort of war of attrition because the the casualty rate from these people who are 
you know, the first up the ladders is incredibly high. Um, and so, you know, and so, you know, you've got to be, you know, pretty brave to do this. And there are other sort of critical things to think about when you're when you're doing this. Um, not only the, the human cost, but also the speed with which you climb up. Um, so basically, you want to do a lightning sort of, you know, climb up so that you can get over. Um, and also uh, estimating the size of the ladder needed for the job. Uh, if you have a ladder that is basically too too high, uh, people are just going to grab hold of it at the top of the walls and sling it backwards. Uh, and this is this is expertly done by CGI in The Lord of the Rings, uh, where you see you know, a horde of orcs just being thrown back and crashing down below on the advancing orc army beneath. Um, but also, you don't want the ladder to be too short, because if it's too short... Yeah, you, know, you basically won't be able to get up over the over the ramparts and fight. Um, but one of the most devastating uses of this tactic of escalade, so this 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 art of scaling the walls using ladders, was in the early nineteenth century when it was used by the Duke of Wellington and his troops uh, in eighteen twelve during the Peninsular War to attack and storm the fortified town in Spain of Badajoz. Um, so we've got an Anglo-Portuguese army here, led by Wellington's troops, and they, they basically storm the castle and force the French garrison to surrender. And it's a really, really... I was reading through descriptions of this last night. It's really sort of fascinating battle that takes place over a series of days, and it involves explosives, it involves you know, some preliminary attempts to capture the bastion, um, massive sort of siege earthworks are dug, there, there's the arrival of really heavy siege guns that sort of, you know, literally um, bludgeon the city almost into submission. Um, and there are attempts to, you know, to, to, to storm uh, the city. And then they manage to, they manage to actually... On the the fifth after the fifth of April, um, when two breaches had been made in the in the curtain wall around it, uh, they they ready themselves to storm the city. And what you have is the next day they launch an attack. So we've got a sort of you know the the siege guns stop so that the troops can go in without being sort of shelled by their own people, and it really is a bloodthirsty battle. And these soldiers that go up on on the ladders, this sort of first sort of group that go up, are absolutely massacred. There are high, high casualties. And it's touch and go as to whether Wellington is actually going to call off the attack. Um, but in the end, you have these two groups, two divisions, who sort of fit the third and the fifth divisions, who are able to link up and get a sort of stronghold and fight their way out, and which leads to... The, which leads to the siege being over and the French, uh, the French troops being defeated and having to having to surrender. Uh, but here again, it's all about the history of the ladder. So the ladder is still a very simple but really vital technology for invading castles. Sam, who knew we were going to talk about about military uses of ladders? 
I know. Well, that we between us, we've covered it. I think, James, which is great. James, I'm going to take us now to Dublin in 1790. Oh, uh, love Dublin. Don't mm. know what it was like in 1790, but um, I love Dublin. One of my favourite cities. Well, uh, you would have seen in the New Year of 1790 a strange procession uh, walking through the streets, where you've got some boys marching, holding ladders, and they are uh, um, proceeding. A, a body being carried through the streets of Dublin. There's also uh, someone carrying a large glass globe in his hand, which he is regularly striking with the knuckles of his other hand to produce a melancholy tone. There are about a hundred of them in total, and a lot of them carrying lighted flambeau, lighted um, kind of candles or, or, or lanterns, until they reach a burial ground. Um, I, I came across this description. I absolutely loved it because here what we've got is a procession of lamp lighters. It happens in Dublin in 1790. And what they're doing here is they're marching through the streets. There's a, a burial of a lamp lighter. And it made me um, think a great deal about what was going on here and what the history of lamp lighters can tell us. This uh, particularly ladderly profession. I think if you could use that word, James. Um, the large-scale public street lighting was introduced to Dublin and elsewhere, of course, in the late 17th century, and primarily to improve public safety. That was essentially the reason for it. Um, there was a, a city assembly uh, law said that they should be hung at least nine feet up. They should be fueled with whale oil. Um, and once you've got this ruling that you're supposed to have your city covered in lights and you need to have a profession, you need to have people who look after them. And these are the people who are known as lamp lighters. Um, it rapidly was discovered that um, if those lights were inadequate, there could be an increase in crime. There's a quote here. The insufficient lighting of the streets of Dublin was complained of as a great grievance and the occasion of the committing of many robberies and other heinous crimes to remedy which mischief an act passed last session directing that the lamps should be kept lighted and burning from sunset to sun rising during the whole year and that the lamp lighter should attend all night to keep the lamps constantly lighted. Um, so that's one of one of a historical source which we can study for the history of lamplighters. They also became the focus of all sorts of um, comments and letters in the local press, and also some entertaining rhymes talking about their nightly duties, what they might have seen, what they might have got up to. Uh, this is a rather good one called "Dick the Lamplighter." It was written by Charles Dibdin. Um, he was uh, born in 1745, died in 1814. I'm Jolly Dick, the lamplighter, they say the sun's my dad. And truly I believe it, sir, for I'm a pretty lad. Father and I, the world do light and make it look so gay. The difference is I light by night and father lights by day. At night men lay aside all art as quite a useless task and many a face and many a heart will then pull off the mask. Each formal prude in holy white will throw disguise away and sin it openly all night who sainted it all day. I love that little describing their uh, their business and the, the wry way you can look at it. Um, obviously, working on the tops of ladders, left lamplighters, very vulnerable to injury, um, the gusts of wind. We know about traffic collisions. We know about um, them being uh, deliberately pushed off, pushed, the ladders being pushed over and them falling down. Um, there are fights which are recorded uh, in the press and also in police reports, um, certainly by 
also fights between lamplighters and drunken passers-by. This is one is the description of a fight between the Dublin lamplighter James Kearn, who in April 1789 was beaten up. He asked two men to get out of his way so he could put his ladder up and climb up, up the lamp. And they set upon him. And um, a witness was interviewed later by the paving board. And he stated that although he believed the assailant had been sober, he also conceded that um, that he had had several half pints of whiskey and water and several pints of port, uh, actually three or four pints of port <laughs> prior to the assault, uh, which really made me chuckle. Um other descriptions of lamplighters, there's one, you've got a cat burglar disguised as a lamplighter. He uses a ladder to get access to the first floor dining room and robs a family of their silverware. That's on Great Ship Street in Dublin. Um, and what's interesting about this, how I came to it, was that you've got this procession right at the beginning. Uh, you've got all of these people working together. Um, they're being together to honour the death of one of their group. But there was actually a strike during this period, a lamplighter's strike, uh, because they're basically paid for the number of lamps that they light. Um, but during this period, to reduce unnecessary expenditure, what they do is they um, increase the number of routes that these guys have to um, traverse as part of their jobs. But by doing so, they actually reduce the number of lamps that are lit on each route, so they lose money. Um, they go on strike, and they're all immediately fined, and those who can't pay their fines are imprisoned. Um, so they are. It's a it's a little history to um, into the, the whole being a lamplighter, particularly in Dublin in the 1790s. And I think it also raises an interesting interesting question of um, 18th century workers groups um, sort of being together, whether it's for a funeral or whether it's going on strike and acting together and, you know, combining for their, their combined bargaining strength in the 18th century. Hey, oh, James. Very good. It also raises the important question of accidents, accidents that happen with, with, with ladders. Mm. Have you ever heard of the word springle, Sam? No, but um, we have done a podcast on the history of accidents, haven't we, James? We certainly have. You should all go back and listen to that. But tell me what a springle is. A springle? Well, a springle. The first mention of it is 1836, uh, and it refers to a thin rod of wood uh, which is used in thatching. And But an earlier use of it was 1563, when um, a labourer called John Housen was up a ladder in his house in Newcastle under Lyne in November of that year, when he fell off a great height, landed on a springle. <laughs> so a sharp piece of wood, which went five inches into his left side and killed him instantly. He's dead. Yeah. So, uh, you know, not only are ladders, um, you know, superstitious things and full of evil, um, but also they're, they're really dangerous. But actually, what I really wanted to just briefly talk to you about uh, in the remaining time that we have is Snakes and Ladders, that fun board game. Uh, you must all know about Snakes and Ladders, whether you play it now, whether you played it in your in your childhood, but it's a very simple game that is totally based on sheer luck. I mean, you've got the, you've got the image of, of what Snakes and Ladders is. It's a, a board 10 by 10, so it's 100 squares and it's dotted around with with ladders going up and you land on a ladder and you climb up the ladder or you land on a snake and then you wee, wiggle back down it's known also under the names shoots and ladders bibles ups and downs uh, shoots and ladders uh was published um 
by the Milton Bradley Company uh, in 1943. But it's a really popular game, characteristically in England. It's a children's game. And unlike other children's games, like Ludo, for example, uh, it's not one of those games that passes elsewhere into into Europe. And it's a late convert to for for America as well. And I was reading all sorts of facts about it in the Oxford History of Board Games, which was published in 1999 by David Parlett. And there's a chapter in there, page 91 to 94, if you're really interested, on snakes and ladders. And it tells you all about the history of the game, so that it's characteristically English or British. Um, it's but also, it starts its life in India. And there's a fascinating article that I've been reading by uh, a scholar. Um, uh, the article is called... Let me see where I've got it. Here we are in front of me here. The article is called The Indian Game of Snakes and Ladders. And it's in a journal called Artibus Asii. So it began as a popular game in ancient India. And it had the name uh, Moksha Patam. Uh, and it, it is a sort of morality game and it's associated with traditional Hindu philosophy contrasting karma uh, or destiny and desire. And basically it emphasises destiny uh, as opposed to games such as uh, Pashizi, uh, which focused on life as a mixture of skill and luck. There's no real skill in this it is pure luck and the uh, what uh, what was uh, the underlying ideals of it were that it was a sort of way of teaching good versus evil and the board was covered with symbolic images so it had gods and angels and animals and flowers and people and the ladders the ladders in this game represented virtue so we've got you know humility faith generosity, whereas the snakes represented the vices, or the snakes represented theft and murder and anger and lust. And and the, the, the way in which you would play the game is if you were following the good path, you would go up the, the, the ladders. And if you were following the sort of the path of sin, you would come down the snakes. And this gets imported over to England. And it's one of those things that sort of comes along with the sort of British Empire and colonialism. And then it becomes anglicised when it comes over to England. And these and these um, these ideas are replaced by a sort of uh, a sort of more Christian uh, form of the game. And by the Second World War, it has this sort of this religious part of it, this morality part of it has disappeared. And we have what is much more like the sort of standard game that we have today. But the article that I was telling you about, this article about the Indian game of snakes and ladders is absolutely ingenious. And it is based on an almost encyclopedic knowledge of all the kinds of boards that survived and very few of them seem to have survived because they're on material that's quite ephemeral like paper uh, doesn't doesn't survive in in great numbers but if you scroll to the end of this article you will see in an appendix all these beautifully intricate illustrated boards that um, this wonderful scholar has has looked at um, and he also talks about the very the different types 
of size boards from those that are 80 odd 81 pieces those that are 100 pieces or 100 squares 124 uh, and those that are very much bigger it is the most it's the most intricately uh, researched um, article that I've read in many a year. And I want to draw your attention to one of the footnotes because it shows a sort of an old fashioned kind of scholarship. This is, you've got a deeply learned uh, individual writing this uh, who's in contact with people all over the place who have expertise in this area. And I will draw your attention to footnote six. In which, he's, in which he writes, I'm informed by Dr. G.N. Sharma, open brackets, letter dated 19th of the 6th, 84, that um, a particular type of uh, snakes and ladders was a popular pastime among the ladies of the court and of the town Udaipur and other centres in Rajasthan in the 18th and 19th centuries. And then he quotes, The sketch of the game was very often drawn on paper or cloth board. There were also wooden planks depicting the game in red and yellow colours. It was played by two or more participants, and with the help of bitters, which are tamarind seeds parted in two, sometimes cowries or bareri, bangle pieces of two or more colours, with coloured pieces of glass as pawns, were also used for playing purposes. So there we are, Sam. Uh, snakes and ladders. A little potted history for you. I love that. I maybe want to go and read that article. You have to send it yes. to me. Uh, I will. Well, well done. I enjoyed our history of ladders. That was really good. I hope you've enjoyed it too, everyone. Um, if you want to uh, uh, more, if you want to see what else we're doing in our lives, do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also smattered all over social media. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. We also have a Patreon page. Uh, if you could help us out in any small way that you can to help us keep this going during lockdown that would be brilliant and finally we have a website historiesoftheunexpected.com where you can find out everything that we have been up to in recent years and all that we are doing at the moment uh, that's it for now guys we're going to come back uh, for the next one with the history of tongues believe it or not I'm looking forward to that hugely bye bye guys When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.